Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus, and we pray that you'd give us ears to hear your word, to understand it, and Lord, the grace to put it into practice. Lord, if there's anybody here that is not right with you, we pray, sweet Jesus, that you'd call them home. In your precious name we ask. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We're going to go through a lot of scripture this morning. Hopefully, Ken will be able to keep up. And so, we'll be in the book of Hebrews. And this message has really been on my heart for quite some time. And uh, most of the time, when I get a message, I'll put it in my phone to try and make some things to help me to remember, because I have forgotten so many awesome messages I can't tell you. (laughs) So I put them in my phone. But this one here, I didn't have to write down. It was just stuck in me. I could kind of just never get it out, but never knew where it was going to go. I just had the basic idea. And so we'll see how it comes out. I want to look at the idea that Jesus is greater. And with this, we're going to see something else that is tied into it. And it's going to be some strong words that come out. And these are words that were written by Paul. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So since I'm the speaker, I can say that and you have to listen. So, you know, it's not a big deal whether people believe he did or didn't. It doesn't change the word. So beginning in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and its various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Now, one of the things we're going to see as we go through this, uh, and really we're going to go through a whole lot of this book, uh, go through 12 chapters of it really, and uh, one of the things we're going to see is the divinity of Christ. It comes out again and again. And so Jesus is going to be glorified. This is one of the purposes of the book, to glorify Jesus. But as we're going to see, another purpose of the book is to glorify Jesus and say something else. Stop your backsliding. And so it becomes very strong. Here's Jesus. Look at how great, how splendid he is. Stop your backsliding. Here's Jesus. Look at Jesus. Stop your backsliding. You know, again and again, he brings it out. And so it's such a powerful thing. And why did he say that? Because this book was written to Jews, to Hebrews, to people who understood the Mosaic law. It is extremely Jewish in thought, extremely Jewish, because he's speaking to a Jewish culture. He's speaking to people who understood the Mosaic law and who wrote this, which, like I said, I do believe is Paul, had to be a man that was brilliant and knew the law very well. And as a Pharisee, he would have been well-trained in this. And in the Talmud, which is the uh, traditions, the Jewish traditions, that at that time were just oral, eventually, a couple centuries later, they were finally being written down. 
but he had to be an expert in those as a Pharisee to be able to quote the rabbis of hundreds of years prior that were authorities. And you find that even here right at the beginning. I'll bring out something in a, in a couple of minutes. But here it speaks about the aspect that God spoke in the Old Testament. He spoke by revealing who he was. And we could look at this in an idea of the unveiling of salvation history. And so he didn't begin with the fullness of the revelation of himself. He began with slowly unfolding the revelation of who he is and one thing building upon another, building upon another to eventually bring him to the place that we would have this greatest of revelation of God where God would take upon flesh and blood and he would come to us. And so we see the wonder of this God breaking into our world. And then in verse 3 it says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. And so here is, right in the beginning, the divinity of Christ. No question, you can't look at anything else and, and come up with a different answer. This is speaking of this, this God that took upon flesh and blood, that Jesus is divine, not made God somehow, but always been God. He is not a created being. He had no beginning and no end. He is the same as the Father, the exact representation. When you look at the Father, you look at the Son, and you see the Father and the Son, they're, they're the same, though there are differences, and I'm not going to get into the Trinity, but it's just an astounding thing where the divinity of Christ here is established right in the beginning. Because as we begin to look at this, and, and Paul begins to lay out how Jesus is greater, we always have to go back to the reality of his divinity, because that is why he is greater, because he is divine, because he is all God, absolute God. And so we have the idea that he begins with then in verse 4, that Jesus is greater than angels. Now this is may not seem important to us, but here's where you get some really Jewishness of this, is the Jewish rabbins had gotten in very deep into the idea of angels and angelology. They had all this building of it, and they went and made angels to be barely below God. And when you go to Genesis, and it speaks where it says in the beginning that it says, let us make man in our image, the Jewish rabbins went and said, the us was God and angels. But that's not the reality of it. That's a total perversion because they could not understand the fact that there was a God that has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was a revelation they didn't have, they couldn't comprehend. But that's how they took it. That's, what they, that's how they basically understood that very aspect right there. And so Paul is going to show that it's not the idea that angels are a little bit below because he's going to begin to dismantle all these false beliefs, all these things that they've exalted, begin to tear them down so that all that's left is Jesus. Amen. All that's left. Amen. There's nothing else. When we tear all these things down, as we're going to see, that Jesus is the one who is left. And we look at him, and we see a glorious, magnificent God. And so it says in verse 4, So he became as much superior to the angels as a name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So we have Paul right away saying, it's not the idea that the angels are just a little lower before God. He said he's superior beyond anything you can imagine. 
The distance is, is infinite because God is infinite. And all angels, whether archangels or whatever, they are all created beings and they are limited. And so here's this God that is infinite. Verse 8, he says about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. And so when we look at that, here is God. Here is God. He has spoken clearly to be so superior to the angels that there's no comparison. He is greater than the angels. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, We must pay more careful attention, therefore. What is that therefore? Tying into what chapter 1 says. Because Jesus is greater than the angels, we should pay more closer attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore or neglect such a great salvation? And so what's he doing here? He's going saying, look at how great Jesus is. You pay attention, speaking to the Jews, but even to us he can do that. You pay attention to the law, you pay attention to what was written, but yet there's one that is greater than that. Because the law may have been given by angels, but this is something different here. The Son is the exact radiance, representation of the Father. And so he says, stop your backsliding. Be careful to pay attention to who this Jesus is. Now, something we have to see with this that is so important. You see, people backslide for only one reason. There's only one reason. What we so often do is we look at the, the, the byproducts that come out of that one reason, and we say, well, they backslide because of drugs or sex or whatever it might be. And really, they backslide for only one reason. It's in the story of the prodigal son. And why did the, fa why did the son forsake his father? Because he stopped loving his father. Only reason. People backslide because they stop loving Jesus. You love Jesus, you'll never backslide. There is eternal security in loving him. There is no eternal security if you don't. Okay? That's just the fact of it. People can try and bring up a, a, a doctrine that does not have biblical basis, that people are eternally secure. When you're in heaven, you're eternally secure. Until that point in time, you must endure to the end. Otherwise, every expression of backsliding in the Bible is utterly, completely useless, and you might as well rip it out of your, out of your Bible because it has no meaning then. But if people can forsake Christ, walk away from him, turn back to the world, and it's there all over the place, as we are going to see that lays this thought out, if people can do that, then we need to pay more careful attention to the superiority of who Jesus is. The superiority of who he is. And stop playing games. Because you know what we do? We don't understand who he is, so we don't understand what sin is. And because we don't understand who he is, we make sin to be, well, not a big deal. So how often is it that people flirt and play with sin because they have such a low view of God, which means that they have a low view of sin. But Jesus is greater than angels. Look at some of the accounts in Scripture when men were encountered by angels and they fall down terrified, trembling before them. Even you go to the book of Revelation, what happens? John the apostle, who knew who Jesus was, ends up worshiping an angel, and the angel has to rebuke him because he's seeing this glory of an angel that's beyond anything he can imagine, and God is infinitely beyond that. 
So in chapter 3, verse 1, says, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest, whom you confess. So here's the actual remedy to the straying, to the backsliding that goes on, is to fix your eyes, fix your heart, fix your mind on Jesus. Now, you know, that's a choice of the will. It's a matter of what we choose to do. Nobody can make you think the way you think. They might manipulate you. They might try to control you. But you have control over your thoughts. If your thoughts go in evil ways, guess who made the choice? Nobody made you. You can't go and say the devil made me do it because he didn't make you do it. Temptation may come, but the choice to give in to temptation is always our choice. It is never God's choice. The devil can't make us. And so we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. And that means you have the very difficult time of sometimes literally having to grab hold of your thoughts that are wanting to go after the flesh, grab hold of them and says, no, they will not go there. They will go here. Is that a battle? Yes, it is. But it's a choice. What do we do? We take the easy way out. My mind goes over here, so I'm going to go that way because it's just easy and there's no resistance and it satisfies the flesh and feeds the flesh. But what comes out of that is death. And so he says, pay more close attention to who this Jesus is. Then in chapter 3, verse 3, we find that Jesus is greater than Moses. Now, as each of these things go on, it's, I mean, if, if you are Jewish and you're looking at this for the first time, I mean, this would be shaking to them. I mean, this would be disturbing because now he's undermining, in their minds, he would be undermining the very foundation of their faith. And he's going to go deeper than that even. But he's going to Moses. And you know what? We always refer to the law of Moses, but it was never, ever, ever the law of Moses. It was always the law of God that God gave to a man to give to the people. Okay? So it was always the law of God. We try to make it the law of man. If it was just the law of Moses, why obey it? Because, I mean, it might be good or nice or whatever, but it's just a, 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 a teaching of man. But if it's the law of God that came through a man, now we have a whole different thing. And so in verse 3, it says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. And so the revering of Moses, and he was a man of God, but guess what? He was just a man, just a man. Was he an extraordinary man? Yes, he was. But I'll tell you what, he wouldn't have been an extraordinary man unless the grace of God was operating in him. Amen. He did not become who he was through his own merit, through his own ability. It was 40 years of making of a worldly man in Egypt as a prince of Egypt. That was his doing. You understand? That's what came out of self-effort. And it took the Lord 40 years to get the world out of him before the man could be used. 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years of dealing with the reality of, of a man so full of self, so full of pride, so full of all of his own will, that God had to deliver this man from it before he could really send him. And so he was just a man. And Jesus is so great above him, so infinitely great, that when you look at some beautiful building, beautiful house, or whatever structure it might be, and you look at that and you go, wow, but yet the one who created it is infinitely more. You look at the, the heavens and, and just get a glimpse of it. Take a look at something that's beyond what man has made, 
But look at what God has made. Look at the vastness of the heavens. The heavens are so big, they are so vast, that we don't even know where the end is. We can't find it. As we can look deeper and deeper into space, we can't come to an end to it. I remember reading a few years ago about the largest cellular structure that was ever found. And when they found this, it blew the laws of physics right out of the water because he says this is impossible according to the laws of physics. This cellular structure to go from one end to the other would take you over 4 billion years. One cellular structure. We can't find the end of it. And what do we do? We play with Jesus. We compromise. We're half-hearted. We have no passion, no desire, nothing burning in us. And we fail to understand the superiority of Jesus over angels, over Moses, because the one who built this house that we are told by in Scripture that it is this big to God, the span of his hand, that big to him. And then we just haphazardly follow him. If it works, it's okay. If not, well, I'll do my own thing. And I've got my own plan for my life. And we fail to understand that this God that is so big, like we were singing in the last song, has condescended, stooped down to make his love known to us personally. In chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. So as the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. What is he saying here? Jesus is greater than Moses. Stop your backsliding. Stop doing what they've done over and over again. And it's the terrible thing. It's in Scripture and it's the reality of mankind. It's this cycle that man goes through where, where God, God blesses them. They walk with God for a time. And in their blessings, they eventually start forgetting him. And as they forget him, they start going after idols. And as they go after idols, then God judges them. And the judgment becomes so severe that finally they start crying out for deliverance. And finally God delivers them and blesses them. And the cycle goes over again and again and again and again and again. All you got to do is read Judges and, and Joshua and you. You see this whole repetition of it. Go through the rest of the, of the Old Testament. And you see Israel again and again, in and out, in and out, in and out. And so what's Paul saying? Jesus is greater than the Mosaic law. You have a reason to be faithful to your dying breath. You have a reason to love him with a burning passion, with everything that's within you. Because you're not serving a mere man. You're not serving an angel. You're not serving some creation. You're serving the creator. And so he goes on in verses 12 through 13, says, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. That's a serious warning. And he's not babbling. You understand, Paul is not babbling. He is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this that we might understand this. And so he talks about unbelief as a sinful condition of the heart. Because what does it do? It questions whether God is who he is, whether he's who he is according to what he has revealed, whether he's faithful, whether he'll, he'll keep his promises, and so on. I mean, it's, it's an attack. Unbelief is an attack upon the character of God. 
It's not a small thing. I'm not saying that to condemn anybody. But I am saying that for all of us that have struggles in various ways of unbelief, we need to go to God and we need to cry out, says, God, help me to have faith, to believe who you are as you have revealed yourself, not as how I want to think of you, but how you've revealed yourself. Help me to believe the truth. And this God that can speak a word and create all the starry host is more than able to come and help us with our unbelief. More than able. Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Okay, so there's a warning that's going on here. Now, the rest that is, is presented here is presented in two different ways, but they're presented simultaneous. The one rest is the Sabbath rest, which Paul is going to deal with more. He's going to speak of the Sabbath rest, and I'll explain that. But he's also speaking about the rest that would happen when they entered into the promised land. But we have to understand something with this. Is so often we take the promised land and we have a very wrong view of it. We think that is what heaven is. That is not a representation of heaven. The wilderness if we might think of it like that, it is the incubator bringing people to salvation. Entering across the Jordan into the promised land is entering into the place of life in Christ, is salvation. It's not heaven because it's full of wars and battles and all these things that we have to face. It isn't until death comes that we enter into heaven. So the promised land is just an expression of a battle that the Christian has to go through. Unfortunately, when you look at the history of Israel, you find them so often either fighting wrong battles or giving in to the enemy. And that's a sad reality. And that's why he's saying this, therefore, since the promise of ending his rest stands, let us be careful that none of you fall short of it. Be careful. What does that mean to be careful? It means that you begin to pay attention to your life. You begin to pay attention to what you're doing. You pay attention whether your life is really pleasing to him or whether you're living according to your own will or you're doing what he wants. We have to be careful. This isn't about some morbid introspection. It's not, it has nothing to do with that. This just has to do with, with understanding the walk that we should have with Jesus and what he's calling us to and being able to honestly evaluate our lives as we walk this journey to make sure we stay on the, on the right path. If you are going someplace in olden times, you would have to have the ability to read the stars and read the sun. You know, then when compasses came out, you could have a compass, and the compass could help you know what direction you're going. If you start going somewhere and you don't look at your compass, guess what? You're going to get way out of, out, out of the distance. We need the compass of God's Word that helps us to stay faithful to Him. And we always have to go and say, am I on the path? Am I on the way home? Am I on the way home? It's not about what you once did. You may have started right. But because you started right doesn't mean you are right. Do you know if you take a little rocket here on Earth and, and, and it blasts off and the destination is for the moon, you move that rocket one little itty-bitty centimeter down here, it's going to totally miss it. The big old moon, going to totally miss it. I mean, that's all it takes, just getting off a little bit because as you start getting off, you get off more and more and more and more and more until you totally miss it. And unless we go and stop and say, am I on track? We're going to miss it. 
and there's too much at stake to miss. And so in chapter 4, verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, referring to entering the promised land, God would not have spoken later about another day. So Joshua brought them into the promised land, but it wasn't the rest. It was something that was to point them to what God was going to do down the road. All this salvation history unfolding, a little bit more coming out, a little bit more coming out, revealing more and more of what it was until the ultimate day where God incarnate came and revealed himself to us. And then in verses 9 through 11, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. Do you understand? Are you seeing this again and again where he's saying, Jesus is greater, stop your backsliding? Jesus is greater, stop your backsliding? That's what he's saying right here. Now, he's talking this time about a Sabbath rest, about about the Sabbath itself. Now, I'm not a Sabbatarian. I don't, I don't have this strict view of the Sabbath, but I do believe that we need to honor the Sabbath, and I'm not going to tell you there's a, a way I'm, I'd even tell you how to do it, okay? You've got to make that in your own heart, but the Sabbath should be a day in which you set aside for God, for the worship of God, but that day is absolutely worthless to you if your life is not a Sabbath rest. That's what he's talking about here, about us entering a life that is in rest in Christ, where our life is a Sabbath rest. What does that mean? That means my life is worship unto him seven days a week, 24 hours a day, every second of the day. And when my life is a life of worship, that everything I do is ultimately in devotion and service to him, then my life is entering into the rest that he wants us to enter into. The problem is so often... People don't enter that rest because they don't want to pay the price. They don't want that. It's too easy to just give over to the flesh. Jesus is greater than the high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the face we possess. For he for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So what's he saying here? Jesus is greater than the high priest, who the high priest could only make an offering for the people once a year on the Day of Atonement. Once a year could he enter the, the most holy place and make atonement for the people in that way. And Jesus is greater than the high priest. Stop your backsliding. Right? I mean, that's really what he's saying, that we should become a people that have this passion for God because of who he is and how he has revealed himself. And so we have this high priest that is greater than the high priest that ever was just of a mere mortal. And Paul will say a lot more about this. There's, and some of these things keep coming out as it goes on. These, these themes start coming together more and more in groups type of thing. And it's just interesting how he keeps this, this whole thought going through the book of Hebrews and begins to unfold it. In verse 16 of chapter 4, he says, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy to find grace to help us in our time of need. What is he saying there? 
He's telling us because we have a great high priest that has gone into the heavens, that he has done everything that was necessary as our high priest, making atonement for us. We have the, we have the privilege now to enter the most holy place in fellowship with God. The privilege of this is something you and I cannot comprehend. If we were part of the Mosaic Law and understood the sacrificial system, we might look at it and we might see some dynamics of that and be awestruck more by the, by the freedom we have now to enter because they understood the reality of the high priest. And when you look on the Day of Atonement, that was the day the high priest did every sacrifice that was required. And I forget how many it was, something like 11 or 15 or something like that. It was a grueling, hard day. And you want to know why he had to do it all alone, no help? Because when Jesus went to the cross, he went alone, and nobody else could go with him. Here you had, even in the, in the work of atonement, on the, day of, on the day of atonement of the high priest, still pointing to Jesus. Still pointing to Jesus. He is greater than the high priest. Then in chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, it says, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. What an interesting thing here. He's bringing out the idea that Jesus is greater. Stop your backsliding in a different way. If I might put it like this, Jesus is greater, so grow up and become men and women of God. Stop being babies. Stop being perpetual babies, always in the place of messing your diapers. There's a work to do. There's something for you to do in the kingdom of God. Stop being babies that want to be taken care of all the time and realize he's calling us to serve. He's calling us to give our lives away for his glory that one day we might stand before him and the crowns we receive, we receive from him, from the grace he gave us to live is what we should and the rewards actually are what he did for us. We should be giving ourselves away for the glory of God, for the salvation of the lost, for the building of his church. Amen. And so that's really what he's saying. He says, you, you should be teachers now. So how long have you been in the faith? How long have you been in the faith? And what are you doing for Jesus? Um, do you understand what Paul's saying here? He's confronting people that should be doing something for the glory of God who are still living in perpetual infanthood, doing nothing for the glory of God. They're living for themselves. It's their own life, their own thing. That's all they want. And they make whatever excuses it is so that they can remain in that situation. What happens now is you go into chapter 4, and verses 4 through 6, I'm not going to read it, but you have Paul laying out the dangers of apostasy, the dangers of backsliding and believing lies and errors, and how it happened with Israel, it can happen with the church as well. You see, he's not speaking these warnings to us because it's not an option. He's warning us because it's a reality that can be there if we take our eyes off Jesus. That's why he warns us. Paul himself even went and says, I fearless, I become a backslider. 
This wasn't something that he was, he was in, in, in constant fear. Oh, I don't know if I'm walking with Jesus now. He walked with Jesus. He knew what it was to walk with him. But he realized the reality of the wandering heart that all of us have. That all of us have. And if we don't pay attention to our heart, our heart can take us so far from, from our relationship with Christ that we are, we're, we're out of the faith. We don't even realize it. And then what happens, as we read earlier, the deceitfulness of sin begins to harden our heart. And so that we have tender hearts today is just the testimony of the kindness and goodness of God. Because if he left us to ourselves, the sin we practice would have only hardened us more and more and more and more. In chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, we want each of you to show the same diligence. Think of that in contrast to the laziness, okay? In contrast to what was about being a perpetual baby, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and practice inherit what has been promised. I can't tell you how many times across this country I have confronted seniors. I'm not kidding, man. I've confronted seniors. I think you can believe it of me. <laughs> and um, you know what they do? It's like retirement. Let's go into play mode. You know, they check out a church. They check out a responsibility. They say, well, I should be turning this over to the next generation. No, you should be raising up the next generation. The most on fire people in the church should be the people that are the oldest. They should be burning. The fire of God should be raging in them. They should know how to pray better than anybody else in the church, and they should be teaching people how to pray. They should be teaching them how to walk with God. We have it all backwards. We want the youth pastors to be the young guys. They don't have any maturity in them. It should be the oldest people that are saying, let me teach you, son, grandsons, and so on, how to have the fire of God, how to burn inside for him and for his glory. It's what he's calling us to do. It's just what happens is we've taken the philosophy of the world and we become lazy. Become lazy. Do you know when people reach their retirement years and they start getting, they start getting their retirement, you know you have the potential of an army of full-time ministers that don't have to have money from the church. You understand? I mean, do you understand the privilege that we have as Americans to have retirement? They didn't have that in other cultures. We have the ability to have an army of people that could have a passion reaching out to a perishing world in every way that they can. Instead, they're on the golf courses and they're wasting their life in worthlessness and meaninglessness. There's a work to do. And you know what? It's not long before we're going to stand before him. And everything in our life should be for the well done. Everything. It should be as children that are are, are phenomenally loved by God that we just become these adoring children wanting to please Him with everything that's within us. There's no retirement. There's no retirement until we get to heaven. And then guess what? There's no retirement there because He's going to have something for us to do. You go into the beginning of Genesis and you look at the creation story and this, I can't remember what verse it is off the top of my head, but there's multiple times in a couple verses it says, and God worked, 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 and God worked. So what did he do? He created Adam and Eve and put them on the planet to work. No place for laziness, no place. 
but our motive should be a passion for Christ. Jesus, now it gets really deep here. Jesus is greater than Abraham. I mean, everything that, that Israel had came from the foundation of Abraham. But who was Abraham? Abraham was a pagan. You realize before Abraham, there was no such thing as a Jew. They did not exist. So Abraham was a Chaldean that was raised by a pagan father that was raised with the worship of idols. And God called this man, however it happened, we're not told his conversion, how he came to Christ, or how he, he didn't know Christ at that time, but he came to the Lord. We're not told that. All of a sudden, we just know, here's this man in relationship with God that was a pagan worshiper and has forsaken all of his gods now to follow the one true God. I'm not going to take the time to go into how radical that is. Abraham was a radical. I mean, he was a radical. And if you study that man's life, you will just look at it and go, man, that guy understood what it meant to walk with God. Look at what he had. Look at how he abandoned everything to follow the God that had revealed himself to him. And what has God done to us? He's revealed himself to us, hasn't he? What should we do? Should we not have the same kind of faith, the same kind of abandonment that Abraham had? Should we not be as zealous after God as was Abraham? In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. Now, this may not seem like a big thing, but it is because the whole thing that they had in that culture of that time, when they swore, when they made a promise, they would swear by something greater than themselves as a testimony if they broke that covenant. But there was nobody greater than God. So he swore by himself. Okay, the greatness of God. That one little verse there just speaks that there's only one God, there is no other God, and he is greater than anything and everyone and any angel or any man. In verses 19 and 20, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't have time to get deep into this, man. This is some, some deep stuff that's here, but I'm just going to lay out a little bit of, this, uh, of the thought that's here. We have a hope the hope of eternal life because of who Jesus is. He's not an angel. He's not equal with angels. He's infinitely above him. He's infinitely above Moses, and he's infinitely above the high priest. He's infinitely above it all, and because of this, we have a secure hope, an anchor to the soul, that when everything around us is going crazy, we have this place of stability in him, that we can run to him as a refuge, that he can be our high tower, our strong tower that we can run into when the battle is so hard and we feel like we can't make it, and we go in there, and it's a place of healing that he might send us back out. You understand? He doesn't send us in the hospital so we can go home and, and lounge for the rest of our life. He sends us in the hospital to heal us so we go back on the front lines. Okay, that's what it always is. You know what has happened so many times? People, they get wounded. You're going to get wounded, okay? It's the reality of it. They get wounded. What do they do? They check out of the church then, check out of ministry. Well, I've been hurt. Well, so have I. <laughs> you know, so what? You've been hurt. It's the reality of being human. But what do we do? We blame God for our hurt. Well, I've never been hurt by God yet. I've been hurt by people. And you know what? God didn't make the people hurt me. It was their choice. It was they, they did. So when I get angry at God over what people have done, I have a very twisted way of thinking then because it's not what God has done. And so here we have a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember the story, Lot, Abraham's nephew, 
decided to live outside of Sodom. And if you look at the whole story, it says a, a terrifying thing. I don't want to get bogged down in this, but it says that Lot chose for himself. And what did he choose for himself? He chose Sodom. Terrifying thought, man. You choose for yourself, you're choosing Sodom. That's, I mean, it's the way it is. We try to soften it up and make it otherwise, but you choose for yourself, you're choosing Sodom. And so he chose for Sodom. So first he moves outside of Sodom. Then he moves into Sodom. And then he sits in the gate of Sodom. You know what that means? He became one of the elders of Sodom. Terrifying. The road of compromise. The road of compromise. Why? Because he wanted the wealth. He wanted the prestige. He wanted all the, the, the position. And yet he became nothing of value to Sodom and Gomorrah. Nothing of value. And so these kings come and lay war to the ten cities of the plain where Sodom and Gomorrah were two of them. Take the people captive. Capture Lot and his family. Abraham gets together his army, which was his own people. And so you think of the greatness of Abraham. I think it says something like he had 360 men, something like that, over 300. That was his own men. I mean, the greatness of Abraham, was, it was, he was a great man. And he goes and he fights against them, and God gives him great victory. And on his way back, Melchizedek comes to him. Melchizedek comes to him. And Melchizedek, if he wasn't Jesus, he sure is a representation of Jesus. Because in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And so what's going on here is the priesthood came through the, the, the tribe of Levi, through the family of Aaron. If you wanted to be a priest and you were from Benjamin, too bad, you can't. It was only through that one family, but that's not how God originally planned it. Originally, God wanted a nation of priests. That's what we're told in the very beginning when they're at the Mount of God, that's what was God's plan, all of them to be priests. But because of their rebellion, the priesthood went to one tribe. And when God had the people enter into the promised land, what did he do? He began to divide up the land among 11 tribes. One tribe got no inheritance. They got no land. Why? Because God says, I am their inheritance. And in that very moment that God says, I'm your inheritance, they became the richest of all of Israel. Irrelevant of what they owned physically, they became the richest because God was their inheritance. Not a land that was given by promise, but the promise of himself to them. And now you have Melchizedek, this one who represents Jesus. And he's a priest of the Most High. And it tells us in verse 4, says, just think of how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. So who do we tithe to? Okay, you don't tithe to the church. Okay, you tithe to the church, you got something wrong. You tithe to Jesus. Okay, that's where it goes. But it comes into the storehouse of the church. Okay, that's the way it works. I've, I thoroughly believe in tithing. I believe it's the right thing to do. I believe people who don't tithe, they have a real heart issue. They got a, they got a spiritual sickness inside of them that they don't understand because they've not made Jesus 
important enough to say that you're going to define all my life. I will let you define my work life. Is it costly? Yes, it is. Is it painful? Sometimes, maybe. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do not regret giving one penny of all that I've given throughout all my years. It's just giving away what he's already given me. Jesus is greater than not just the high priest, but the entire priesthood. You see, the importance of the priesthood and of the Levites was, was they, kept, they kept a really strict genealogy. Okay, This was something the Jews did. They kept a really strict genealogy of the families because God gave the people inheritance. And the inheritance was the land. So it was a gift from God. The land was to stay in the property of the family. So when you had sons born, the, the, the children would be recorded. And so they kept very accurate records of who was born, who was the firstborn, and so on. I mean, they, they, were, they were very exact in this. But they were especially so with two tribes. With Levi, because out of that were the Levites that cared for the, for the tabernacle and the temple. And out of that tribe came the, the lineage of Aaron, who were the priests. Only the lineage of Aaron could serve in the temple and offer sacrifices. Think of that for a moment. From that standpoint, from the Mosaic law, if all of a sudden the line of Aaron was done away with, the whole sacrificial system is done away with. They meticulously went and made sure that they had track of all the, 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 the priests and the families, and so anyone that rose up would be put in that law. But the second one was of the tribe of Judah, specifically of the lineage of David, because that was the kingly line. And that was the line that Messiah would come through. And so now you have this situation where Melchizedek is a priest, but he's of no tribe. He's not of the very lineage of Israel. But yet there's this priest that is greater than all the priests. Greater than all the priests. So Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi, but he was of the tribe of Judah. Yet he was a high priest greater than any high priest because his was an eternal, continuing, indestructible position of high priest. And this comes out in chapter 7, verse 14. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah in regard to the tribe of Moses, said nothing about priests. And what we have said is more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest on the basis, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. You see, there's only one who has an indestructible life because all of creation can be destroyed with a word just like it was created. All men and angels could be destroyed with a word by God. There's only one who has an indestructible life, and that's God himself. And so this God became our high priest to die upon the cross, to go into the most holy place that we might be forgiven. And so Jesus is greater than the Mosaic law. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And when you look at the whole sacrificial system, you sinned, and only if you sinned accidentally, all right, that's a serious thing. People don't understand. In the law, if you sinned intentionally, there was no sacrifice. No sacrifice. You're going to pay the penalty of your crime. Guess what David committed? Two sins that were unforgivable under the Mosaic law. 
adultery, and intentional murder. He had two death sentences against him. That's why when you look at Psalms 51, what did he begin with? Have mercy on me. He knew he couldn't offer up 10,000 sacrifices. Wouldn't do any good. He was under that divine death sentence. There was no atonement for that. So he went to the God who forgives. And he gave mercy. And so here you have the law that could not cleanse people. It was just a cover-up for a little bit, all pointing to Jesus. Every sacrifice ultimately points to Jesus in one way or the other, what he would do on the cross. So the cross is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was only pointing to Jesus, only pointing to the work on the cross and what he would do with his death and resurrection and ascension. It's absolutely astounding at how exact and beautiful this is. And then Jesus is greater than the sacrificial system itself. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? You see, the blood of bulls and of goats was poured out, but it could not make true atonement. But when the blood of Christ was poured out, it made atonement once and for all for those who had come. True forgiveness, true cleansing, true purifying. And I know we, we say it poetically about just one drop of blood is all we need. Well, it's a, it's a judicial act of what he did on the cross, okay? Uh, There's only so much blood in his body. So that was poured out as atonement. It's faith in what he did in his atonement and faith in the blood that he poured out that we could be forgiven, that we believe that blood is more than enough, that it is able to atone for my sins, that is able to cleanse me of every sin. And that is not ever to be used as a justification for compromise and worldliness. That is the reality we need to stand upon by faith, that when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have one who forgives. And so anybody that's in this church this morning that is not right with Jesus, there's an offer of forgiveness to you. He offers you forgiveness this morning. And if you don't understand how great the gift is, then you also then don't understand how great is the judgment that is upon you. Because the wages of sin is death, eternal separation forever and ever and ever from God. And the gift of God is eternal life that he comes to rebellious sinners and offers them forgiveness if they will turn and repent. There's no other way to salvation. There's no other way to heaven. He's made it narrow, made it narrow on purpose because we can't go and make up our own terms on how we're going to go to heaven. We can't go and have our own imaginations or thoughts about it. He went and said, this is the way, walk in it. And that settles it. This is it. Either I obey what he says or I am rebellion against him. And if I'm in rebellion against him, then I'm still in my sin. The gift is offered. I must lay hold of the gift by faith and believe that God is good to have given me this, this great and precious promise of forgiveness of restoration, of fellowship with him. In chapter 10, verses 19 through 23, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having a heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, 
let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promises faithful. How much of what I've been sharing is just pulled into those few verses there? Just pulled into it. Just a wonderful way of him encapsulating the whole thought that's there. Jesus is greater than all these things. And because he's greater and because he is the true and ultimate and final high priest, he has went and made the way that we could enter into the most holy place. When you look at the, at the, the pattern of the tabernacle and of the temple in Jerusalem, there was the holy place and there were certain things that was there, the table of, of shoe bread and, you know, the candelabra, you know, that was there and other things that were there. But there was another place, the most holy place, and there was a veil, a heavy curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And the high priest could only enter there once a year through all these sacrifices like I shared earlier. It was a grueling day for him and a terrifying day. It is said according to tradition, whether it's true or not, I don't know, that they would put, bell, put bells bells on his ankles so that if his bells stopped ringing, they would realize that he'd been smote dead by God and they'd stick a staff in there and drag him out. I don't know whether it ever happened. I never read anything like that, but that could be true. I don't know. But you see, Jesus, when he died on the cross, it says the veil of the temple was rent. He ripped open that veil. He made access. You know what was in the most holy place was two things. There was the Ark of the Covenant, and that held the, the uh, Ten Commandments and Moses or, or Aaron, yeah, uh, Aaron's staff and some manna and whatever else was in there. And on top of that was the mercy seat. There were two separate things. The mercy seat was of two angelic beings that happened. These ones happened to have wings. Some angels have wings, some don't. So these ones had wings, and they were, were uh, pointing their, their, their wings at each other, which made a seat which would have been a very uh, uh, interesting kind of seat for a king is what it was. So the king would sit on the mercy seat. And that's where he would dispense mercy from the mercy seat. But because of our sinfulness and because there was no lasting atonement, a priest, a high priest could only go in once a year. But Jesus ripped that open, making it that we can go in any time, any time. We are welcomed into that place, but we better understand we can only enter into that most holy place if we have clean hands and a pure heart. We can only enter that most holy place if we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, purified, made righteous through what he has done on Calvary for us. And so what does he tell us in verse 35 and following? says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, listen to this, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. What does that mean? He gives definition. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved terrifying thought that's there. You shrink back, you go back, you forsake salvation. That's the reality of it. You, you forsake everything that salvation is. And when you think of this, when you think of this, we're told in Psalms that when we repent, our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And you know, that is a testimony that the world is a globe, not flat, all right? So all those flat earth people, they're just, okay. They need to read the Bible once again. 
And, uh, but you know what happens when you go to Ezekiel 3 and chapter 18 and chapter 33? It comes out in those three chapters that if the righteous man turns from his righteousness, God will no longer remember his righteousness. What does that mean? He removes our righteousness from us as far as the east is from the west. It's as if we were never righteous because we have rebelled against him and our righteousness is removed then. Final point. You come to Hebrews chapter 11 and you have all these saints of faith. And every one of them is from the Old Testament. None of them received the promise that they were looking for of Messiah. None of them received it while they lived. And yet, we have this that's said about them in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 through 38. Some faced jeers and floggings, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. What an astounding statement. Those who did not receive the promise of Messiah but looked forward to the promise of Messiah, they suffered in horrendous ways. And yet God says they were not, that the world wasn't worthy of such people. How much more is that said of the true church today? And yet God offers us up that others might be saved. We are to give ourselves away for the tremendous privilege of glorifying his name in a dying world. I'm, we just have to understand how great is this privilege. How great is the privilege that we could give ourselves away for him. Church, we need to grab hold of that and understand there's something we need to do for the kingdom. There's something we need to do, and we have been too lax, too lax. This isn't works-based. It isn't something that has to be fought up. But I'll tell you what, you fall in love with Jesus, and all of a sudden, your heart is burning to glorify him. You want to do something, and you're saying, any, you're saying, God, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? All this you've done for me, what can I do for you? Give me something to do. And you know what? He'll give you something to do. If you don't know what to do, ask Pastor Jeff. He'll tell you what to do. <laughs> Oh, moving on to chapter 12 now. Jesus is greater than the great cloud of witnesses. He's greater. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Why is he saying that? Because we have all before us even before Christianity came into existence, people under the Old Testament dispensation, we had people that were victorious to the end of their life, and he said, if they can do it, how much more can you do it with the grace of God? How much more can you do it through Calvary and the power of his blood and all that he's done? Victory is available to the church. There is no reason for us to be defeated. We are defeated because we do not lay hold of the promises of God or believe that Jesus is really worth the pursuit. And so what? He gives us an answer, right? He gives us an answer. What's that answer? Verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, but understand something that is so beautiful in here. So beautiful. Who for the joy set before him, what was the joy that was set before him? Me and you.
That's why he went. That's why he went to the cross. The joy set before him, he endured all that for me. For me. And you should be able to say that for your own life. He went through all that for you. Not for you to be defeated. Not for you to be going through the same things again and again. But to begin to overcome and to conquer and to do something with your life. That you begin to say, God, you did it for me. What can I do for thee? The cry that should rise up within us. Because there is purpose. He saved us not just to rescue us from our sin, but to become agents of bringing us salvation bringing a salvation to a perishing world. Last verse. Verse 3 of chapter 12. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. Look at him. Fix your eyes on him and see how wonderful this God is and what he did for you. And your heart should be bursting with gratitude and thanksgiving and a desire to bring glory to his name because he is greater than anything, anyone, any part of creation. He's greater than you have ever imagined. And he's inviting you into the most holy place to spend time with him. He's inviting you into a Sabbath rest where you can live and dwell in his presence. Father, we come before you now in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Lord, I just pray somehow you, you take this message and you, you cement it in us that you are greater. You are greater than everything, than the law, than Moses, than Abraham, than angels, than, than the high priest and the sacrificial system and the sacrifice of themselves. And greater than the temple. You're greater than all of it, oh God. You are infinitely above and beyond it all. And you have broke into our own personal lives. After you went to the cross and died and rose again, you broke in our own personal lives that we could know the depths and heights and riches of your love and walk in that place of deep abiding fellowship with you. You have done such a phenomenal, such a phenomenal work. Lord, may we not trample it underfoot. May we not demean it and think it to be some, some small thing. May we not think that our sin and compromise and our ways are more important than what you did for us on Calvary. Lord, if there's anybody here that's not a true follower of Jesus or anybody here that's a backslider, God, I'm asking that they would hear this word, that they would hear and they would realize the invitation is going out to them. This God that is greater, this God that is greater is calling them to repentance and salvation. And Lord, may they see the tremendous gift that is offered to them. And may they run to you, O God. May they run to you, Jesus. Lord, I also, also ask for any of those who are Christians who are stumbling in the way. Who aren't walking like they should and they know it. And they have a litany of excuses and they try to justify it. God, I'm asking for conviction to come upon them. That they would see what has been going on inside of them. The excuses and how they've trampled you underfoot as a result, and they have counted what you did on the cross as a small thing. Lord, may you convict them, and may they come. When I open this altar up for them, may they come running to an altar saying, God, I've got to deal with this. I've got to deal with this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord.
there's anybody here, you're not a true follower of Jesus, you're a backslider. You are going to make a choice. You will make a choice. If you are not right with Jesus, if you're not on your way to heaven, you are right now making a choice. You're either making a choice for heaven or hell. For Jesus or the devil. It's just that simple. There's no neutral ground. You can't just be neutral. You will make a choice. It's just what choice are you making? Are you going to flee from the suffering and pain your sin has inflicted on you? Because I know it has. All you have to do is be a little bit honest. And you know the pain your life has gone through. You know the, the sins that you have committed and the sorrow it produced and the sins committed against you that's produced all kinds of sorrows as well. You have a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow in your life. But you have the choice either to continue in the same thing that has produced all that pain and sorrow, which has been your sin, or you can come and fly into the arms of Jesus and say, God, I am so weary of my sin. I'm so weary of what I've done to myself and what I've done to other people. Rescue me, Jesus. And there's a God that will bring forgiveness to you, will rescue you if you want to be rescued. If you don't want to be rescued, you can stay in your sin. That's your choice. Just understand when you stand before God that you made the choice. And when he says, depart from me, you made the choice here on earth and you chose not to serve him. Sad when it doesn't have to happen. It does not have to happen. Nobody has to go to hell. People go to hell because they choose to go to hell. Would everybody please stand?